Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back for another episode, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. We are nearly at our 200th episode, aren't we? Yes, I think next week is episode 200, which is pretty crazy, really. Yeah, so we we will try and do something exciting for that. Uh, So we will see. Watch this space. We're not even sure if it is next week, but it's certainly soon. So we'll find out for definite. So before we get on to today's case, which is going to be one of yours, isn't it, Beth? We, it is indeed. It is. We will take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters and, of course, our new supporters who have signed up in the last week. So they are Cassie Ann Barry, Victoria Norris, Gemma Upson, Charlotte, Katie Ledworth, Gemma Cowton, Karen Murray, Stacey Lewis, Katie Mueller, Olivia Lewis, Rebecca, Gabrielle Dashazor, Wishy Lynn, and we also said thank you to Chelsea's wet salute recently, but didn't include surnames that week. So here's hoping that makes you smile because I'm sure I've said it wrong. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters and especially our newest ones. So thank you. And if you would like to know more about Patreon, just head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast where you can find out about supporting us if you wish to. Is that the right is that the right website, Mark? Uh, I wasn't listening, but probably okay. yeah. I'm uh, sure it was. I think it is. <laughs> Before we get on to the episode, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about last week's case and I thought it was a d- domestically uh, abusive relationship that was going on and not, I kind of said it wasn't uh, it wasn't domestically abusive. And one of our listeners got in touch, and I'm really grateful that she did. And she said, um, I think I was getting confused between domestic violence and domestic abuse. So whilst this wasn't necessarily violent throughout until the very end, it was still domestically abusive. So domestic abuse can include coercive control, bullying, name calling, anything really that doesn't include violence or violence as well obviously is is domestic abuse but domestic abuse is is basically anything that that's not necessarily violent I hope that makes sense I think so and I think from my side of things um I know I potentially kind of was asking questions about whether or not this was a controlling relationship and I really didn't mean to diminish what she went through and their relationship it was clear by the end he was absolutely a controlling prick but at the beginning I was trying to get a feel for their relationship I didn't know the case so it was my genuine thoughts and musings about whether or not he was controlling whether they had as a couple settled into certain roles and actually she was happy in her role but clearly this wasn't the case I didn't even notice that you had kind of used the wrong terminology I guess because I knew what you were trying to say but we are in that sort of public platform and we would hate to get something wrong and then for someone to completely get the wrong end of the stick or to misunderstand. So I'm really glad that that listener did bring that up for us. Yeah, and it's it's a constant learning curve and uh, we always take any any constructive feedback on board like that. So yeah, a huge thank you for getting in touch. And uh, yeah, I've learned that and I've learned to make that more clear and I think because we know each other so well you will kind of second guess what I actually mean not necessarily what I'm kind of saying so so yeah thank you this week I've decided to do something a little bit different for our case we were requested by Charlie on Instagram to cover the episode and I thought why not involve not only his experiences but also that of some of our other listeners as well 
It's a case that happened reasonably close to me geographically, so I really remember this one, and I wonder if it's the same for you as well, Mark. I've always enjoyed having the opportunity to get listener comments and thoughts out on the show, but usually it's in quite a light-hearted way. This feels somehow quite different. It's really emotive and powerful when we hear from witnesses to crimes anyway, but I think this is going to be even more so this week, because we're going to hear from people who are close to the show who have had experiences with this case. Yeah, we have had it before, haven't we? Um, It just always resonates so much more when we are in touch with somebody who's been very closely involved in something. So yeah, I think it's going to be hugely interesting. And I saw some messages kind of, I didn't really read them properly, but I could see what what kind of conversations you were having. So um, yeah, I think this is going to be an extra special case, really, in terms of how it lands and how it makes us feel. This week we head to Reading in the United Kingdom. Reading is a place quite close to where I live geographically, probably about 40 miles away, but it it doesn't feel that far because it's on the motorway. And it is a town and borough in Berkshire. It's situated in the southeast of England. It's only 40 miles from London, so 20 minutes on the train, and it is a major commercial centre, as well as boasting a large shopping centre that draws visitors from all over. And every year it hosts the Reading Festival, one of England's biggest music festivals. It's a popular place to live for the commuter because as well as London, it also has easy access to Oxford, Southampton and even Birmingham. I looked into celebrities from the area because you know me, Mark. I love doing that. (laughs) Of course. Of course. So I found out that Jane Austen went to a school there. Oscar Wilde spent some time in prison there. And born there were... These are the people that I found interesting. Ricky Gervais, Kate Winslet, Chris Tarrant. For those listeners with small children, Justin Fletcher. Jeremy Kyle, but I won't ask you your opinion on him, Mark. No, that could be a whole episode. It <laughs> could be, couldn't it? We should do that one day. And it's also where Princess Kate, as I like to call her, hails <laughs> from. cannot call her that. It's uh, the Duchess of Cambridge or Princess Catherine. No, what is she now? Princess... Princess of Wales. You used to get really mad at me at work. And now I fucked it up. Now I don't. Yeah, I remember that, actually. Now I don't know what she's called. When Charlie wrote to us about today's case, I asked him to give us a feel for the town from a local's perspective. And it does feel kind of weird to say town, because although they've applied for city status a few times, it has been unsuccessful thus far. So he described it as saying that although it's a large town with a hugely popular shopping centre and a football team who have played in the Premier League in the past 10 years, there are many areas which feel more villagey and less town-like. He said this creates a real mix of the city rush you get from London and the family acquaintance you expect from a rural village. I think it's this element of Reading which really makes this case hit home for a lot of people. And I think we, we kind of all know somewhere like that where it's massive, but actually... It still has that homely feel. Yeah, because I know there's... It's kind of similar to Swindon, which is a similar-sized town. So a large town, population over 200,000 probably. And there's all these beautiful uh, little enclaves surrounding uh, the town centre. So, yeah, I know Reading is surrounded by loads of amazing villages and smaller towns like Wokingham, for example, which is a really nice place to live. I know it's been voted as one of the best places to live uh, over the years. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. It's a lot. It's a place a lot of people can identify with, that town and country feel, which is really similar to what we talked about last week, which is interesting. It's quite a, a UK kind of thing, I feel, as well. There's a lot yeah. of places in the UK where 
people describe it in this way. Yeah, I would agree. So let's take a pause and hear from our second show sponsor at this point. It was Saturday the 20th of June 2020 and Reading's Forbury Gardens was filled with groups of friends sitting outside enjoying the sunshine. It was warm and sunny and the popular park was buzzing with chatter and people just enjoying their weekend. After a long time in lockdowns and enforced isolations, people in the UK were excited to finally be able to get out in public again with their friends and family, doing something normal at long last. I personally remember this time, I we would go out to places like Cotswold Wildlife Park and local farms with a whole family group that summer and it was a real joy for things to be back open again. Yeah, it was a real novelty, wasn't it, to be able to socialise and, and have some normality. And listener Natalie has described Forbury Gardens for us. So she said the park itself is a really pretty green oasis right in Reading Town Centre. There's a bandstand and it's always planted up with beautiful flowers. It's the place office workers go to eat their lunch and get some fresh air, or parents will take their kids for a picnic and let them run around. And Charlie described how Forbury Gardens is a peaceful little section of park gardens that he often used to frequent in his school days, sitting by the famous lion sculpture. As the day moved into the afternoon, it was the kind of summer here in the UK where time just slips by, many of the people sitting in the park were enjoying a drink or they'd brought a picnic, and soon enough it was late afternoon. It was still warm, it was still sunny, and doesn't it just feel like a distant memory now we're in rainy, cold October and it's getting dark by 6pm? God, honestly, the the dark descends. Like, honestly, I feel like we've lost about four hours of evening light already and in the space of about two or three months. It's, it's pretty miserable, but we both love this time of year, to be fair. We love autumn, so I am not complaining, but I do miss the warm weather. No, I'm not, but I mean, back in this date... In June 2020, it was 6.45 in the evening and it was still sunshiny, bright and warm. Yeah. And it is lovely, isn't it, the summer? Oh, God, yeah. Earlier in the day, there had been a Black Lives Matter march and protest in Reading Town Centre with speeches. And many of the people who had attended this had chosen to continue the day with picnics and gatherings in the park. It was a real community feel. There was a group of about 10 people sat together when suddenly a lone figure strode towards them holding a knife and a nearby witness described the man as shouting something before beginning an attack at the group, attempting to stab them all. Chaos ensued as he managed to stab three of the group severely in their necks and torsos, darting at random in a frantic yet precise attack before he turned his attention to others nearby. People shouted run and they fled to the exits. One person described how the attacker had tried to get to him and his group, getting within five metres, but luckily they were too fast and they got away to safety. A group sat down were not so lucky, the attacker stabbing at random at them, running around the circle in which they sat, injuring one of their party seriously with a stab wound to the back of the neck. And suddenly, almost as quickly as the attack had begun, the knife-wielding attacker fled, running straight out of the park. And suddenly, almost as quickly as the attack had begun, the knife-wielding attacker fled, running straight out of the park. His entire rampage lasted less than a minute, but had devastating consequences for so many. Members of the public rushed to try and help the victims, attempting to stop the bleeding from the casualties using whatever they had to hand, so t-shirts were mentioned often, but even one lady's canvas shopping bag and paramedics rushed to the scene where they were witnessed performing CPR on the victims and rushing others to hospital. 
The first emergency call came through at 6.56 and incredibly the police arrested their suspect within just five minutes of this, which I will discuss in a bit more detail in a short while. A council leader tweeted, Concerning reports from Reading Town Centre, please stay clear of the area as police are dealing with a serious incident. And our listener Elliot described how it felt being really close to what happened. He said, I live in the town centre and the whole thing went down just a few minutes walk away. It was a hot day and I was having a barbecue with some friends in my garden and we knew something big was happening because there were about four police helicopters hovering over the town and all you could hear was police and ambulance sirens. There was also a really horrendous element to this case where videos and images began to circulate on social media of the carnage in the park after the attack and the police were peeled for people not to share these but they were already out on social media and I know it's a sign of the times but I do hate that there were the the people in these videos were having CPR performed on them there were people that were injured I I get it like take a video to try and help an investigation or if you see something that you don't feel able to intervene with you can give that evidence to the police but this and then sharing it on social media just made me really angry this is um i I think there's a real fine line isn't there between people that video events like this who are genuinely trying to help with the inquiries that will be taking place imminently and people that just want to they're almost like a grief tourist, like a junkie of this kind of stuff. And they want to share it with friends to get the reaction from them, to massage their own ego or whatever it is, I don't know. But I honestly think there's a real fine line and nobody needs to video someone having CPR performed on on them. It's appalling to have somebody's, potentially someone's last moment on this earth being videoed. It's just so undignified. It's It's cruel. Yeah, and I do think if you had taken a video of the attack itself happening, not to share on social media, but to give to the police, fair enough. But what good does that do? Those are paramedics or members of the public trying to save somebody. So yeah, I'm glad that you're on the same page as me there, Mark. It's awful. Yeah. And tragically, whilst the police had worked really hard to apprehend the attacker and they arrested him they soon released the news that three people had been killed and another three had been seriously injured. Reading was soon a town in a state of shock, described in the media as a place where the sense of mourning was palpable. On the Sunday, the usually busy and bustling town centre was quiet with the roads cordoned off and bloodstains visible on paths. The streets were deserted, save for police and some journalists, and then the few people who needed to get to work, but many of whom described feeling quite frightened. Charlie said the first he'd heard of this was when it came upon his phone that there had been an incident and he said naturally his mind went to a fight or perhaps he hoped it had been a false report altogether. There was obviously the usual media and social media speculation it was something to do with the Black Lives Matter protests earlier in the day but this was soon proven incorrect. And he, like all in the town, was in shock that something so horrific could have occurred in his local area. But even harder to fathom was the idea that this had been a targeted and planned terrorist attack, directed at the town and the local people. And whilst the police had initially stated the attack was not being treated as a terrorism incident, and they were keeping an open mind and ensuring counter-terrorism of officers were deployed, a statement was then released on the Sunday which clarified it had indeed been a terrorist attack and that the suspect was re-arrested under Section 41 of the Terrorism Act 2000, which gave the police longer to detain him. 
this is I know you're going to come on to exactly uh, the motivations and and talk about the victims in this as well but it's weird with this because it was only two years ago just over two years ago and I think because it was in the sort of in the midst of the pandemic even though we had come out of um, lots of restrictions at that point the pandemic was still dominating the headlines and then this happened and it gained airtime and people were talking about it but I think this story disappeared much more quickly than it would have done if it had perhaps happened now. Absolutely 100% agree with you there. So the three victims who lost their lives were named publicly. The three of them were friends, they were members of the LGBTQ community and had been enjoying their evening together. There was also a fourth friend of their group and he was severely injured but managed to escape with his life. And then the other two people who had been seriously injured were also friends with each other. They'd been in another group close by. The men who died were James Furlong, a much-loved teacher and head of history and government and politics at the local Holt School. His family released a statement in which they described the 36-year-old as the best son, brother, uncle and partner you could wish for. And Elliot told us that he had never personally knew any of the victims, but said... A few of my friends were students of James Furlong and apparently he was one of those teachers who everyone just loved and a lot of people were absolutely crushed by what happened to him. There was also Joe Ritchie Bennett, a 39-year-old US citizen who had been living in the UK for the past 15 years. Someone described as full of life that would make anyone feel welcome and would make everyone smile with his sense of humour. As well as his vacations with his family, he'd been planning a trip to... I mean, he was going to climb... Mount Kilimanjaro for his 40th birthday. Now, that's that's not my cup of tea at all, but he'd been training to do that for his 40th. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, and that shows you what a, what a man he was. Um, yeah, but it's just really sad. I'm so sad by this. Yeah, and his family said, we loved Joe so much and we are in deep sorrow. The third of the friends was 49-year-old David Wales, a senior scientist at a global chemicals company. His parents said, David was a kind and much-loved son, brother and uncle who never hurt anyone in his life. We are broken-hearted at losing him and in such a terrible way. We will treasure our wonderful memories of him and he will always be with us in our hearts. A series of tributes to the victims were read out at a memorial service attended by hundreds, which was to commemorate a year since their deaths, at which David's close friend then said, They say time is a great healer, but I don't think we will ever recover from the loss of David, James and Joe in such a terrible way in these gardens. However, we pray they are now at peace and able to look down at us and are happy with the love shown for them and the tributes being paid to them by everyone here today. So you can really just feel how loved these men were and how missed they were and obviously are still. And also when when a loved one, I don't know this firsthand, I'm fortunate enough to not like most of us, but I think when a loved one dies in such violent circumstances, it must just be so much more difficult, mustn't it, to comprehend their last moments on this earth and to comprehend the fact that they've gone in such violent circumstances I, I, I just can't imagine what it must be like, but you must almost talk to yourself with their final moments. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's only been two years. Whether or not time is a healer for these people, it won't have been a healer yet. It's not It's not going to be a healer so that quickly. So yeah, it's just horrible. 
And also you've got to think that for, I mean, what's his 2020? When did the pandemic start? Was it 2020? 2019? No, I think no. it was 2020. 2020. Yeah, so we were... March 2020. There had been a few months uh, at this point where, yeah, like you say, people had kind of come out of a severe lockdown and were able to socialise a bit. But for many weeks prior to that, people had been isolated, hadn't been able to see family at all. It was incredibly strict. So these people had had only just probably started getting reacquainted with their loved ones, with their friends as well. And then they're pulled away and it's it's gone. And the impact of the attack is still felt now, two years after the event. Natalie, our listener, shared how it's affected her and she wrote... Whenever I visit now, I always have a real feeling of sadness that I'm sat in such a beautiful place, but where three men lost their lives and another three were injured in such a brutal and shocking attack. People who were just enjoying the late summer sunshine and catching up with friends after months of isolation. It's just so, so sad to think that they had their lives taken away from them for no real reason at all. And Charlie described how it hit him, saying, Even now I can't bring myself to walk through Forbury Gardens yet. It feels like the memories I have of it aren't real anymore. So, yeah, you can just see, can't you, that even if you're not necessarily there when it happens, it's it's still got such a huge impact. You just can't even imagine for those men's families the impact on them. And I, I also, and I know not everybody would agree with this, but I do think some people can really feel that energy um, from from an incident like this and they will go to that park months years later and be able to pick up on it and it's a very uneasy feeling and you're in such a beautiful place like these people have described but it's so tarnished now and I I do sometimes think yeah you can if you're real high empath you can tune into that unfortunately. On the 3rd of June 2017 London Bridge and Borough Market were targeted by a devastating terrorist attack which left eight people dead and 48 seriously injured And Charlie opened up about how he'd been in Borough Market the day before that. And he said he felt the same about this area. He only plucked up the courage to go back about eight months ago. And it was the first time after the attack had taken place. And I mean, to be fair, I don't know if I could even return knowing I had I been there a day later, life could have been very different. Um, But he went on to say it goes to show you don't have to be somewhere. You don't have to know someone. You don't have to actually see something to feel like you have do and did yeah and I think that's really key isn't it yeah I think it does you can just feel it you can put yourself in that position particular particularly if you were there within close proximity or if you know the area very well you can really yeah empathize with it on another level and and really think that could have been me or it could have been somebody I knew and loved Um, particularly in this case with Charlie you know there's a day in it and they could have been there the the day before or the day after, sorry, and then it happened, yeah. Yeah. So just who was the attacker and what were his motives? Kari Sardala was a 26-year-old man originally from Tripoli who had come to the UK in 2012. During his teenage years, he'd fought in the Libyan Revolution and when applying for asylum, he told Home Office officials that he had been in the Islamic militant group Ansar al-Sharia, but lied by claiming he had not fought himself. So he said, I did not shoot or use any weapons. I just helped them and guarded some hospitals. He described to the Home Office about refusing to torture people. And he said that a fatwa had actually been issued against him because he'd refused 
to actually fight. So that terrorist group was later banned in the UK. In 2019, police recovered a mobile phone from Sadala that he had used and he'd viewed social media images of himself as li- in Libya as a boy. He'd held firearms, he was wearing military fatigues, he was showing off his bullets and these pictures showed he absolutely had been a part of the group. He had been trained and he had fought and this military training and experience was what gave him the ability to strike down his victims so fast he knew exactly where to plunge that knife to cause death or serious injury at least. And he was absolutely not the peaceful innocent man he tried to paint himself as. In fact, he couldn't even keep up the facade of this peaceful innocent man. During his time in the UK, he spent years in and out of prison for a range of violent offences, including multiple assaults on police officers and emergency workers, racially aggravated harassment, possessing knives and causing suffering to animals. Oh, wow. What a catalogue of things that are going to make you hated in this country. Causing suffering to animals, assaulting police and emergency workers, racially aggravated assault or harassment. What just really an example of not keeping your head down and and trying to stay below the radar when you've already got yeah. the, the danger exactly. that your true background will come to light in a country that does have excellent counterterrorism measures in place and surveillance. So, yeah, I mean, clearly didn't give a shit, did he, about, yeah, trying to not get caught out. No. And he lived a chaotic life. He was sometimes homeless. He often used drugs. On one occasion, whilst being arrested, he called a female officer a slave and spat in her face. And the victim said it was the vilest thing she had been subjected to in her career in the police. So that's quite major because they do not get treated very well by criminals. And while in jail in 2017, he was noted by the prison authorities to be spending significant time with notorious Islamic radicaliser Omar Brooks, a long-time member of the now-outlawed group Al-Muhajran, I think that's how you say it, but I can't remember for definite, and in 2019, MI5 was told that Sadala might wish to travel to Syria, but after an assessment, he was discounted as a threat and therefore not investigated further. He successfully appealed to the Court of Appeal to reduce a prison sentence, so he was eventually released eight months earlier than expected. He had twice been refused asylum, but following a judicial review in 2018, he was granted leave to remain in the UK for five years. The day before his release in June, so just two weeks before the attack, he was told in a letter that the Home Secretary had decided Your deportation is conducive to the public good, but it was not legally possible given conditions in Libya. So he shouldn't have been here and he wasn't wanted. The UK authorities wanted rid of him. His behaviour here and his criminal acts here meant really he should have been deported, but he couldn't be because of the conditions in Libya. Well, I was going to say, I kind of understand it in a weird way because we are a good country that would not want to send anybody back to a country where there is inherent danger for somebody like that and I kind of do get it we were stuck between a rock and a hard place I guess and also what I would say giving him leave to remain in the UK probably meant that there were strict conditions attached to that and he would have probably been monitored I guess by the parole office I would have thought post-release absolutely yeah 
And during his final prison stint before the attack, fellow inmates described how Sadala had openly threatened knife violence, that he said he wanted to rape Britain, and that he had discussed jihad and told his fellow inmate that if he could get away with it, he would kill as many people as possible. But the other inmates kind of laughed off as showboating. It was only after the Reading attack that they realised he had actually meant this. And again, whilst it's really frustrating to look back and hear that, again, you can understand that he... You, the fellow inmates might have been like, well, do you know what? He's a young guy and he wants to try and make a name for himself and he's going on about this stuff that's not true. And he's probably just annoyed or <laughs> that's an understatement, but he's angry with the system that is put him behind bars. He hated this country. He's going to be going off on a rant about it and making all of these threats. Most people don't then follow through on that it's just anger manifesting mm-hmm. in that way so i don't think anyone would necessarily expect him to follow through with raping britain for example um so i don't i don't blame them for just passing it off as a showboating it's so difficult isn't it it's so many different elements but it's all individual different groups of people as well if all of this was happening with the same people you would think come on you need to really take more notice but these are all different groups someone who did take Sadala's behaviour really seriously was his brother. His brother Eamon, who actually raised the alarm, said that his warning was very serious and he later told BBC News, I said that my brother was at risk of harming himself or others and I asked for the police to detain him under the Mental Health Act because he was in no state to be left by himself. I do believe that a lot could have been done and if it had, lives would have been saved that day. And I'm saying that not to defend my brother, but I think the victims and victims' families deserve to know the truth. And I thought that was incredibly sad. Sadala had been researching and visiting Forbury Gardens since his release in the two weeks, and the night before the attack, police did follow up on that welfare check that they'd been alerted to by his brother. Body cam footage shows a two-minute encounter during which Sadala reassured the officers that he was fine. And one officer is heard telling him, you're not in trouble, we're just here to check you're all right. But all the while, the carrier bag containing the knife that he had just bought that he was due to use the next day is clearly visible in that footage on the floor behind Sadala. Do you mean the actual knife is visible? The actual knife. I'm really trying not to criticise the police when I don't have any reason to, because I think it's easy to fall into the habit of saying, oh God, they're fucked up again. And they do a great job on the whole, and it's easy with hindsight to pull things apart. But this, I do think... That's pretty glaring, isn't it? It's there, it's a knife. You've got concerns about this guy, he's got a history of violence. Surely you would have seen that and taken action. They clearly just didn't see it because if they had have seen it, they'd have done something about it. I think this is a really tricky part of the case to discuss, to be honest. And it's really easy to say the authorities should have done more. But I started to wonder, at what point are they allowed to step in? There were clearly failings along the way, but I'm sure good police officers must feel some real guilt around this. And one of our listeners got in touch to share their personal reflections about the incident, said the following, but to keep it anonymous. I'm a probation officer and the guy who did it was known to us. I actually met him in person once, albeit briefly. He was a petty criminal and a bit of a prick who always smelled like weed, which made me chuckle a little bit. Um, But you never would have expected him to do what he did. It was absolutely devastating for all of us afterwards. And we all felt a little bit responsible, I guess. And I think that that kind of was maybe the bit that speaking to him about his experiences kind of made me think, actually, yeah, it's it's easy to say more should have been done. But these were all different authority bodies and all different elements to this. 
Yeah, there's clearly lots of different people involved and probation officers, I don't know, might not have... Well, they would have known the, the full picture, but this is a guy who's being rehabilitated back into society. They're there to support him in that process and to check up on him. And I suppose unless something really presents itself, how far do you go? So maybe they didn't see that knife or maybe he's allowed under the terms of his license. Well, he wouldn't have really been out. Well, maybe he was out on license, I guess, if he was released early. But the terms might have said that he's he's allowed to do that. You're allowed to go and buy a knife. Anyone is allowed to go and buy a knife in this country without questions being asked. So maybe he wasn't subject to additional checks. I thought rather than dwell on the they should have done more kind of way of thinking, which I do totally understand and appreciate. And a lot of the victims' families kind of keep being publicly quoted around. It kind of doesn't get us anywhere. So I thought I'd share that the four heroic police officers who chased, tackled and arrested Sadala were nominated for bravery awards. And I thought maybe we'd focus on this instead um, because it is just an, uh, it's a side to the case that I don't think me or you could ever really fully understand and an actual inquiry would be able to look into it properly. But yeah, I thought maybe we'd look at this instead. I think you do about to do the right thing. And I think it would have been so easy to just put this as a throwaway sentence at the end of this episode. So I think it's right to dwell on this and look at this amazing bravery from four individuals. So PC James Packham, Sergeant Ian Watkinson, PC Liam Steele and PC Liam King's brave actions were celebrated alongside colleagues from across England and Wales at the annual Police Bravery Awards ceremony in December 2021. PC Packham, who had only been an officer for two years, was off duty and enjoying a summer evening in Forbury Gardens with his friends when he witnessed from afar the horrific stabbings. Without a thought, he ran after the attacker. So he said, I was sitting on the grass facing towards where the victims were and I don't know what got my attention first. I think it was a scream. I looked up and there was the suspect and he was going around the group who was sitting on the floor stabbing them. I shouted, knife! And as Sadala ran, PC Packham kept his eyes on the suspect while he called the police and then ran after him out of the park, still describing Sadala and his whereabouts in detail as he ran after him despite having no protective equipment on him. His precise instructions then allowed nearby unarmed, uniformed response officers, PC Steele, PC King and Sergeant Watkinson, to make their way by car to the top of Friar Street, where they saw Sadala running towards them. And despite not knowing if he was still armed, they got out of their cars, they chased him, they rugby tackled him to the floor, restrained and arrested him. PC Steele said, en route we started getting all the information that it was multiple people being stabbed and as we were coming down Friar Street I saw the suspect running down the road with blood covered all over his hands. And PC Packham said that despite his lack of protection and danger of the situation, adrenaline took over. And he said, I just did what I thought was best to do at the time. I don't know if I believed it. My first thought was just to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't get away. Obviously, I didn't know the extent of the injuries of the victims at that point. Isn't that just amazing? Yeah, you can tell it's a vocation for these people. It's not a job. It's sort of ingrained, isn't it, to do the right thing and to not think about their own safety, but to protect the public. And we have definitely criticised the police a lot on this show in the past and mostly uh, because it was valid. But I do think it's so good to see this other side of it, which is also quite common, actually. We just don't maybe give it the attention it deserves like you are in this case. So, yeah, this is just 
another level. Yeah. So Sadala was examined by psychiatrists and he was found to have no mental illness. Earlier symptoms suggesting otherwise had been quite short-lived. And so the psychiatrist said in their reports that these symptoms were actually attributable to his drug misuse at the time. They concluded that he had an antisocial personality disorder and had rather crudely attempted to feign madness in police custody, but they said that his offences were conducted in a premeditated, planned and carefully executed manner, and they also said that he knew what he was doing was wrong. The idea that Sadala was motivated by terrorist reasons was evidenced by his online activity. So he'd been looking at extremist images, military activity in Libya, images of body bags, as well as images of the World Trade Center, Islamic State flag, and videos of the infamous Jihadi John. He was heard to shout Allah Akbar during his attack, and a Muslim bystander gave evidence that he had even said, God accept my jihad in Arabic at the time too. On Wednesday, November the 11th, Saladar pleaded guilty to three murders and three attempted murders. He was willing to confess to his crimes, but he denied a terrorist motivation of this. But the judge rejected that, and at sentencing on the 11th of January 2021, he handed him a rare whole-life order, meaning that he'll never be released from prison. This is quite rare because of the motivation of the crime, so the judge stated he found Sadala had committed a terrorist attack motivated by his Islamic extremist ideology. And here in the UK, only two other people had previously been given a whole life order for murders motivated by ideology. So one of the men who killed Lee Rigby and the man who murdered Joe Cox. So he was only the third person um, at the time. And that's clearly why he was saying that it wasn't terrorism. So that he didn't get a whole life tariff, I guess. Exactly, exactly correct. And so I, I read that he had, I think, 24 years for each of the attempted murders and then life sentences for all three of the murders. But basically the judge then said, whole life order. Overall, it's it's just, it is rare, but it is clear that this is motivated by Islamic extremism. This case has really had such a huge impact on anyone who has heard of it, but especially those locals. And one of our listeners, who would prefer to remain anonymous, provided us with this quote to share. She said, I remember that day well. I think it really hit home for me because I'd recently visited the grounds of my two daughters. Forbury Gardens was also a place I spent a lot of my youth hanging out with friends. Back then it was the hub of Reading. There would always be somebody you knew there. There had been a Black Lives Matter protest in the garden some hours before the attack happened, and my first thought when the news came out was that the attack had been led by racism. However, it was soon reported that the three men had been stabbed, were part of the LGBTQ community, and had nothing to do with the earlier protests, and perhaps then it was a homophobic attack. But again, much later, it was confirmed to be a terrorist attack, and the three men who were murdered were very, very sadly just in the path of a crazed killer set on fulfilling whatever crazy intentions he had that day in the name of his religion. I remember picturing Forbury Gardens in my head and thinking, I know where I'd run, I know where I would hide. It must have been so scary, frightening and traumatic for all the people that were there who witnessed what happened, and a huge loss for the families and the friends of the victims who were so carelessly murdered. It was a very sad day for the people of Reading, and something that will always be in our minds. So I thought, let's just remember James Furlong, Joe Ritchie Bennett and David Wales, and think of their families and their loved ones and anyone who's been touched by this horrific terrorist attack. Thank you, Charlie, for the episode suggestion. And thank you to any of our listeners who got involved with their quotes and their comments and um, let us share those in the episode. Yeah, thank you, Beth. And that was such a unique episode for us because there's so much involvement from a number of our listeners 
So yeah, uh, even though I know you you put it together, but yeah, I would echo echo what you've said. Thank you to everybody who got involved, and that really um, really brings it home to me. Listening to that firsthand from 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 them, yeah. And a huge thank you to the people who wanted to get involved but perhaps didn't get enough time to get messages across to me. I might make a, a thread on Facebook on the Facebook group so that if you wanted to share some of your thoughts or your own kind of um, feelings around what had happened, you can get involved on there if you weren't able to also have your quotes on the episode. Thank you for listening and we will be back next week with another case. We'll see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye.